Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Well, before we get started in our study this evening and uh, or this morning in, in Revelation 11, let's bow our heads together and just go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're so thankful for the fact that you work in each of our lives and, and we each uh, live our lives under different circumstances, different backgrounds, and it's always fascinating to see how you work to bring us to a knowledge and understanding of the gospel and also how you work in our lives to challenge us with the importance of your word and to study. And we're thankful for these men who are serving on our board, each one of them, thankful for the tremendous way in which they uh, give of their time and their uh, energy to make sure all the things that need to get done get done around here. And, and Father, we are above all grateful for your grace toward this congregation, the way you have provided so uh, tremendously over the last five years. And we know this is simply because this is your plan and this comes from your grace. And so we realize that it has nothing to do with who we are, what we're doing, but it has everything to do with uh, your grace and your plan. Now, Father, as we study your word this morning, we pray that God the Holy Spirit would help us to understand the things that we study, that even though this deals with future things that will not involve us, nevertheless, there are principles and promises that we will cover that do relate to us and that the, uh, impact our own spiritual life and our own spiritual growth. And so we pray that you would guide and direct our thinking, give us a concentration this morning in your word, and may God the Holy Spirit use it to uh, further our spiritual growth in advance. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11 is a chapter that some have said is one of the most difficult chapters in all of the Bible to correctly interpret. And part of the reason for this is because of the way this fits chronologically within the scope of the seven or the three series of seven judgments that we have in Revelation. There are these three series of judgments that occur. The church will be raptured, and then sometime following the rapture, there will be a peace treaty, a covenant signed between a person known as the Antichrist, also referred to in Revelation as the first beast, and he is the uh, becomes a ruler of a confederacy of nations in the in Western Europe, and he is the also known as the prince who is to come. And he signs this treaty with with Israel. This begins this period known as uh, Daniel's seventieth week, or the last seven years of God's plan for the nation Israel. It's divided into two parts, two equal parts, three and a half years each, and the the event that marks out the midpoint of the tribulation is when the Antichrist will desecrate a temple, the temple of God, as it's stated in Scripture, in Jerusalem. Of course, we know there's no temple there now, but there will be by this time, and this marks out the midpoint. Now, that much we can say for sure, comparing Daniel 9, Matthew 24, and the description of things in uh in Revelation, but how these three series of judgments relate to the first half, the second half of the tribulation, a matter of debate among many scholars. 
And I have come to my conclusions based on a number of factors in, in my study. And I believe that in the first half of the tribulation, we'll, we'll see these, the first two series of judgments, the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments. The seventh seal judgment opens up and reveals that within it are seven trumpet judgments. And then the seventh trumpet judgment will uh, blow and reveal within it seven bowl judgments, sort of as when you watch a fireworks display and you see a rocket shoot off into the sky and then it bursts and out from that burst there come uh, seven other rockets and then each of those burst and reveal seven more. It's that kind of an idea. So there are these three series of judgments. And in between these judgments in Revelation, there are what we might call uh, interludes. And it's a, also a challenge to the student of the Word to try to figure out how these interludes fit in terms of the broad chronology. And we're in the second interlude period that we see here, which is uh, introduced in the 10th chapter, where the mighty angel, strong angel, appears to John and he is holding in his left hand a little book. And he has John take the little book and to eat the little book, which uh, pictures the fact that John is to assimilate the message that is within this little book, and then he is to write it, he is to describe those judgments. And I believe that the little book prophecies come in and give additional information related to what has been going on already, as well as setting up for the final judgments that occur in the bold judgments and the events in the second half of the tribulation period. And so each of the next four chapters relate to different uh, things that are going on in different spheres within the uh, uh, w- within this seven-year period of the tribulation. And they all ultimately focus on Israel because Israel is God's focal point during the tribulation period to bring the Jews to a point of repentance to where they recognize that Jesus is indeed their Messiah and that they will accept him as their Messiah. And so chapter 11 focuses on these two witnesses that many believe are prophets from the Old Testament who come back, uh, are restored to life, physical life, and have a ministry to Israel and against the Antichrist. They So you have the introduction of the two witnesses and the remnant, which is the believers within Israel during the tribulation period. This is then expanded some more in the twelfth chapter, where the remnant is described as the as the woman who has a uh, has twelve stars around her head. She is the woman pictures Israel, gives birth to a son. That's the Lord Jesus Christ, and the woman is persecuted by the dragon and ends up fleeing to the wilderness, where she is protected by God during the last half of the tribulation period. Then we have the description in chapter 13 of the dragon who empowers the two beasts, the Antichrist and the false prophet, and the mentality of the earth dwellers, that is the unbelievers who will continue to resist the truth and uh, in resistance to God and rejection of, uh, of Christ during the tribulation period. And then a, an act of grace by God in chapter 14, three angelic announcements to mankind further indication that God's grace is profound in the tribulation period and millions of people will come to 
trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. It's not simply a time of horrible judgment, but it's also a time when God's grace is manifest to all of the, all of the human race. Well, last time we got into the first verse. The first verse states that there was given me, that is John, a measuring rod like a staff. Someone said, get up and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship in it. Leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, that is, to the Gentiles, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. And the first question that I ask that we must understand is, when is this taking place? Chronology is important. You may think, well, that's not so important. Let's get to real practical things. Uh, but practical things always flow out of a broader framework. And so we have to make sure we, uh, as best we can, understand certain of these details that are given in the Scripture. And a key verse here is verse 14, which states that the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. So after the a description in chapter 11 of the ministry of the two witnesses were given this chronological marker that the third woe uh, comes after this. This completes the second woe. Now, back in chapter 9, when we were studying the series of trumpet judgments, we saw the angel state that the last three trumpet judgments were the three woes. So the second woe would be the sixth trumpet judgment. The fifth trumpet's the first woe, sixth trumpet's the second woe, and the seventh trumpet is the third woe. So that tells us that the ministry of these two witnesses occurs prior to the seventh trumpet judgment. The seventh trumpet judgment, of course, contains the seven bowl judgments, the final series of judgments that culminate in the Lord Jesus Christ returned to the earth at the second coming, his defeat of the Antichrist, false prophet, and Satan at the campaign of Armageddon, and then the establishment of his kingdom upon the earth. So the question then has to be addressed as to just how that all fits within the overall scheme of Daniel's 70th week, and I believe that uh, the trumpet judgments are in the first half. Then as we began to look at the, this verse last time, the focus was on this measuring rod. And what does that mean? Is this a good thing to be measured or a bad thing to be measured? Is it it's more than simply getting dimensions? Uh, what is being measured are three things, the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship in it. And so I raised a number of questions last time that have to be answered. First of all, what is the meaning of measure? We saw that it has something to do with uh, evaluation and approval because in the second verse we see that the Gentiles are not to be measured and they are cast out. The outer court is cast out and that indicates a rejection. So this has something to do with acceptance and approval by God of the temple, the altar, and those who are worshiping in it. Now, that raises a question we have to get to this morning, and that is just where, just what's the nature of this temple and its worship? So we looked at who and what is measured. That's the uh, altar, the which is the bronze altar, and the temple itself. A uh, third question that goes with this is just addressing the question of what temple is this? Is this a figurative temple? There's the, some who try to make this represent the church. We reject that. 
It's not a heavenly temple, even though the term temple of God everywhere else in Revelation is talking about the heavenly prototype temple, the dwelling place of God in heaven. It is clear from what is stated in chapter 11, verses 2 and verse 3, that this is talking about the earthly temple in Jerusalem because it mentions the fact that the outer court is given to the Gentiles. That obviously is going to put it on the earth. The holy city will be tread underfoot for 42 months. Again, that puts it upon the earth. Everything else that is described in the chapter is earthly in Jerusalem. So this is talking about an earthly temple that is built in Jerusalem during the uh, tribulation period. Uh, fourth, we ask the question, what altar is this? Is this an altar in heaven? Because every other place where altar is mentioned in Revelation, it mentions uh, it's in heaven. It's the altar of incense, the prototype altar of incense in heaven. But this is not a heavenly temple, so this is not a heavenly altar. It is a distinct altar, and it would refer to the bronze altar in the uh, outside the uh, temple, the holy place itself in uh, in Jerusalem. Fifth, we looked at the question of who are the worshipers. Are they apostate or are they approved? And we saw that these are approved. They are measured. The Gentiles are not measured, showing acceptance. These are worshipers. They are the remnant. They are Jewish believers in the tribulation period. These are uh, Jews who have come to understand that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who gave himself as a substitute for their sins, and they trust in him. Now, they are engaged in, uh, still engaged in sacrifices. Uh, as, the, as we see the, uh, during the tribulation period, there is a return to sacrifices. And these are... Uh, Levitical sacrifices because the, 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 those who have built the temple are not saved. I believe they will be uh, unsaved Jews. There are movements today by several different groups in Israel where they have uh, built or rebuilt uh, furniture for the temple. They have identified those who can serve as priests. They are rehearsing all of the different sacrifices and how to uh, perform them. And they believe that uh, very soon the uh, control of the Temple Mount will be given to Israel. They will destroy the uh, Dome of the Rock, the Mosque of Omar that is there on the Temple Mount now. And then they will uh, rebuild a temple where they will reinstitute sacrifices. And uh, so their motivation is not from a, uh, a, a positively spiritual viewpoint because they have not yet accepted Jesus as Messiah. They're just going back to the old Mosaic ritual. And I believe that when they establish the temple and the ritual, it will be, um, it will be Levitical. But as I pointed out when we ended last time, it is not the sacrifices that are important for salvation. It is the heart attitude or one's belief in Christ. And as we have studied many times in our Thursday night series on Revelation, I mean on Hebrews, where we've gone through the whole history of the tabernacle, the sacrificial system, the uh, worship in the temple, that these sacrifices had to do with external ritual and cleansing in terms of the ritual observance in the tabernacle and temple. 
and that that was distinct from personal uh, salvation experience, that it was not required of priests to even be saved. The only requirement was that they'd not have certain physical defects and that they'd be related to uh, Levi and for the high priest that he would be a descendant of Aaron. So there's just physical qualifications. And nevertheless, the, what is pictured in the sacrificial system and in the ritual of Israel were spiritual truths that would uh, be understood by those who had trusted in a God's provision of a future Messiah as, as Savior. So I believe that in the tribulation period, what will happen is there will be a, a reinstitution of these Levitical sacrifices, and then there will be those who trust Christ as Messiah. And just as you have the apostles and Paul go into the uh, temple at that time, and they never challenge the temple observance uh, from the period of 30 A.D., 33 A.D., when Jesus is sacrificed, from that time, when, he's, when Paul says that's the end of the law, from that point until the temple is destroyed in A.D. 70, you don't read anything in the New Testament attacking that, uh, that service, uh, the sacrifices, as apostate. The writer of Hebrews says that it has a perfect opportunity in chapter 9 to point that out, and he doesn't. He just says they're not; those sacrifices are not effectual for permanent uh, cleansing and permanent uh, salvation. So we answered the question in terms of who are the worshipers, that these are Jew, the remnant of Israel, Jewish believers in the tribulation period. Uh, when we address the question, is the temple apostate or approved? Uh, this morning we'll see that it is recognized by God as his temple. It is called even here in 11.2, the temple of God. And then we address when does the measuring take place, and I believe it's in the early half of the first part of the tribulation, or early part of the first half of the tribulation, and then we'll have to look at the question of the designation of time as 42 months or 1,260 days. Okay, skipping ahead a couple of slides, the point here by comparing verse 1 with verse 2, verse 1 says, measure the temple of God, the altar, those who worship in it, Verse 2 says, leave out, ekbalo in the Greek, meaning cast out, literally cast out what is outside or what is outside cast out. It's a play on words in the Greek, focusing on the fact that there is a rejection of that which is outside the temple. The temple, the term there for temple is uh, naos, which indicates the inner buildings of the temple, the inner part of the temple. And I concluded last time with... Uh, uh, three basic observations, the temple, the altar, the worshipers are measured, Gentiles aren't measured. It could be protection, delineation, or ownership, but with the contrast there that this indicates something positive in relation to the temple, the, the altar, and the uh, worshipers, and something negative in terms of the Gentiles. So their, um, their worship is acceptable and I tied that at the end last time to several passages, but I'm just going to re- remind you of a couple of those very quickly. First, one Old Testament passage at the end of 1 Samuel 15:22. Samuel said, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. 
Consistently, God focuses on the attitude, the belief of the individual is what he requires, not just external sacrificial uh, observance. And so the real issue in worship has to do with one's trust in God and his heart or volitional orientation to God. The same thing is true when you get into the New Testament. John 4, 23 and 24, we're to worship God in spirit and by means of truth. Now, this is crucial to understand what Jesus is talking about here is a unique change in history that with the coming of the Holy Spirit in the church age, that it is the Holy Spirit who is to empower the believer's life. You have the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, but not to empower their spiritual life, but to give direction to leaders in Israel, the kings, the prophets. Uh, Initially, it was to empower, to give wisdom or skill to those who built the, the tabernacle. And so we are to worship by means of the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, and by means of truth. So what we see when we come to these worshipers is they are worshiping God according to their acceptance of Jesus Christ as Savior. That is truth. Now, I do not believe that the Holy Spirit is present in the spiritual life of the tribulation Saints, I believe that Second uh, Thessalonians 2 talks about the restrainer who is removed. That's the Holy Spirit. And so they go back to a type of spiritual life that is comparable to the spiritual life of the Old Testament. And that's why there is this return to, um, to, the, to ritual. Now, God does not, that is not condemned. Uh, in the uh, in Revelation at all, and it will lead eventually to the establishment of the new covenant sacrifices in the millennial temple, which we'll get to at some later date. So I asked the question last time, we ended on this, which temple is this, heavenly or earthly? And I believe it's an earthly temple in Jerusalem. It may have been initiated and built by those who were apostate, those who had not accepted Jesus as Messiah, but the, the spiritual condition of the builders of the temple was never an issue. Those who rebuilt the temple under Zerubbabel may or may not have been believers. Those who worked on the reconstruction of the temple under Herod may or may not have been believers. But these who are approved, these who are worshiping in Revelation 11.1, 1, these are Jewish believers in the New Testament period. Now, just to give you a review of the history of the temple. I've put together this little timeline. Initially, there was the tabernacle, the description of which was given to uh, Moses on Mount Sinai, and then this was constructed uh, by the Jews during their year at the foot of Mount Sinai. This became the temporary dwelling place of God until a permanent house was built known as the temple by Solomon. So from 1446 B.C., until 960 B.C., God dwelt uh, between the cherubs on the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle, uh, despite the fact there were a few instances. For example, when it was capt- the Ark was captured by the Philistines, later the Ark was taken to Jerusalem. The tabernacle remained up at Gibeon. Uh, those are just some of the interesting things you have to deal with in terms of transitions uh, through different periods of history. And that's important to understand that concept of transition uh, because the tribulation is indeed a transitional uh, period like that. 
Then we have the first temple period. Solomon builds the temple in 960 B.C., and that first temple is destroyed in 586 B.C. by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians when the uh, Israel, the, the uh, excuse me, the southern kingdom of Judah is defeated and Jerusalem is sacked. The temple is destroyed, and a uh, third of the people are removed from the land and taken back to uh, Babylon. Then after 70 years of captivity, there is a return in approximately 538 B.C. under Zerubbabel, and then there is the attempt to rebuild uh, the second temple. They have various uh, fits and starts as people aren't too uh, interested in getting the temple finished. Finally, in 516 B.C., they finish the second temple, and the second temple continues until A.D. 70. Now, there are two stages to the, uh, the second temple, as we'll see, but that's all considered the second temple period because sacrifices never stop. Once they uh, inaugurate the second temple, once they sanctify it, sacrifices began, and throughout the entire period of the Herodian Reconstruction, there was uh, no stopping of the sacrifices, so that's all considered one period. Then the temple's destroyed in 70 A.D. in 691, we have this uh, Islamic mosque built, uh, the Dome of the Rock, which is there to the present day, and we don't know when it will be destroyed or removed, but we know that it must be gone by at least the midpoint of the tribulation. There will be a third temple built, the tribulation temple. It may begin before the tribulation begins. It may begin during the uh, first half of the tribulation, all that we know for sure is that by the time of the midpoint of the tribulation, it is functional. Daniel tells us that sacrifices and offerings will have been reinstituted in uh, Daniel 9, uh, 20, uh, 26, I believe. Then we have the millennial temple built after the return of Jesus Christ. So that gives us just the panorama. Another way to look at this timeline, we have Solomon's temple, 960 to 586. Uh, Jerusalem was very small at that time. This is a picture of what the old city of David would have looked like. The upper area in the upper right is the temple mount as it would have existed at that time, which is where Solomon built uh, his temple, which was called, which is called the first temple. And then with the return from uh, Babylon, you have the construction of Zerubbabel's temple, which was rather modest compared to Solomon's temple. This is operational from about 516 to 20 or 19 BC when Herod decides to rebuild it. And it is uh, under construction until about 46 BC, uh, AD rather, and when, before it is finally finished, it's not even completed during the time of uh, the uh, first advent when Jesus was on the earth. This is a depiction of what the temple looked like in that early uh, period, the per- per- early period of the second temple during the Maccabean period. And then this is a picture from the um, um, Jerusalem model there in Jerusalem of the Herodian temple. Jesus, before he was crucified from the Mount of Olives, he looks over the city, weeps over Jerusalem, and knows that Jerusalem will be uh, destroyed because of their rejection of him and that God would uh, remove them from the land as he had promised. 
And that, of course, caused the disciples to ask him, when will these things be? And he answers those in Matthew 24 and Luke 21 in what we refer to as the Olivet Discourse. Today we have the Dome of the Rock there. This is a picture of the Temple Mount. We have the Dome of the Rock with the Gold Dome and to the left and to the right, the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And the question is, well, what's going to happen to remove this so that the third temple can be built? The third temple will be built once control of the Temple Mount goes to Israel, according to prophecy. Exodus 25.8 gives the motivation, let them build for me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. So when we look at Daniel's 70th week, we see that the first three and a half years is a time of peace for Israel, not for the world, but for Israel because the Antichrist has entered into this uh, treaty with Israel. But it shows that Israel is under the control of the Gentiles. Ever since the Babylonians conquered Judah in 586, Jerusalem has ultimately been under the control of, of the Gentiles. There's never been a time when they have had the kind of autonomy which they had under David or Solomon. So the first three and a half years are a time of relative peace in Jerusalem, even though I believe the outer courtyard is being trampled down by uh, by the Gentiles. Then the temple will be desecrated with the abomination of desolation, and this will be followed by three and a half years called the Great Tribulation. Now, in reference to the question about is this a apostate temple or an approved temple, there are three passages that refer to it in terms of it being the property of God. Matthew 24:15, Jesus says, When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, even if it is built by current apostate Jews, it's still a holy place because God has put his name on the temple mount. It is a set-apart place for his name. Second uh, Thessalonians 2, 3 through 4, Paul says that when you see the Antichrist setting himself up to be worshipped and taking his seat in the temple of God. So he sees the tribulation temple as being the temple of God, and we have the same terminology used in Revelation 11:1, 1, calling this tribulation temple the temple of God. So it is accepted by God as his because it is on his holy mountain where he has, he has placed his name. Now when we look at verse 2, it says, Leave out the courtyard which is outside the temple. Literally, it's cast out the outer courtyard. And the schema I have up there is a diagram of the uh, temple it's, I've oriented it so east is to the right, north is up. North is always up whenever you look at a map. And that way it fits with the other diagrams I have. But the area on the left side depicts the temple proper, the naos, with the Holy of Holies and the holy place 
and then the bronze altar, the altar of sacrifice outside. It is that area that is measured in 11.1. Then the next panel, the outer square, is the area where you had, according to the Herodian temple, the court of Israel, the great gate, the court of the women, the court of the Gentiles, and that area and the rest of Jerusalem is stated in verse 2 to be uh, under the domination of the Gentiles. Here is another schema of the Herodian temple. This You see the temple building itself here on the left with the Holy of Holies, the holy place. Out here, the outer altar. This is the area uh, that is approved. So it's the rest of the area that is given to the Gentiles, and they will uh, trample it underfoot. Now, one of the questions that comes up that has to be addressed as, you, as we look at this is when does this occur, the treading underfoot of the holy city? And you read many uh, dispensationalists, prophecy scholars, and many of them say that this must be the second half. This 42 months is uh, three and a half years. You have the two sides to the tribulation period, the 70th week, the first three and a half years, the second three and a half years, and many will say that this is in the second three and a half year period. I have a problem with that, and that is because the distinction made in verse 2 is that there's still approval by God of the inner sanctuary, the naos, and it is only the outer courtyard and the rest of Jerusalem that is under the domination of the Gentiles. But what happens at the midpoint of the tribulation is that the Antichrist will set himself up to be God. He will, according to Second Thessalonians 2, take his seat in the temple of God to be worshipped as God. And that suggests to me that it's not just the outer courtyard at that point that is under the domination and control of the Gentiles, but it is the entire temple mount, including the inner sanctum, the Holy of Holies, that comes under the domination of the Antichrist. And so I would put this uh, treading of the holy city underfoot for 42 months as being in the first half of the tribulation, and complete control uh, then goes to the Antichrist during the second half of the tribulation. It's interesting when we look at the uh, these terms that are used. For in verse 3 we read that uh, God says, I will give power to my two witnesses, and we're introduced to these two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, the, the use of the 42 months, which is three and a half months, and the use of the 1,260 days, when you use a 30-day month, a lunar month, to uh, uh, study this, a prophecy month, and that we, we go through various calculations to realize that the Jewish calendar was a 30-day 30, uh, 30 uh, month cycle, that these seem to be used with two different orientations. In Revelation 13.5, we have our only other use of 42 months, and it's descri- it describes the power, to- the time of absolute power given to the Antichrist. So 11.2 talks about the Gentiles dominating the holy city for 42 months. Uh, 13.5 talks about the Antichrist's authority for 42 months. Uh, these refer to the judgment on 
Israel when something negative is happening. This, these are the bad guys that are described as having power for 42 months, basically. Then we have the, the use of the term 1,260 days, de- describing in 11.3 the, um, the two witnesses. Those are the good guys. And in 12.6, the woman, which is Israel, flees into the wilderness where she has a place prepared for her and God, protects her and provides for her for 1,260 days. These are the good guys. So the bad guys are described in months. The good guys are described in days. Some have observed that months are used to describe judgments. Uh, days are used to describe uh, what man is doing. So I believe that's where the distinction should come in terms of this time period. Now, when we get into verse 3, we see that there is a shift to two individuals that takes place who have a unique ministry that's described in the rest of the chapter. These are called the two witnesses. God says, I will give power to two witnesses. They will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in uh, sackcloth. Did I leave out verse 3? Let me go back here one slide. Yeah, they're clothed in sackcloth. Now, some have suggested that the clothing in sackcloth, sackcloth was um, a type of fabric, usually uh, very rough. Sometimes it was made of, uh, uh, might be made of uh, camel hair, might be made of the the hair of uh, goat's hair, goat skin turned inside so that it is uh, very rough on the inside, very uncomfortable. Some people see it as like you're wearing a sack where the arms are cut out. Others see it as, a um, as maybe just something you would wear uh, under your garments, like uh, something like a loincloth. Uh, it was very uncomfortable, and it was worn to indicate that you were in mourning. It was worn to indicate that you were distressed uh, about something. And in the Old Testament, there are various times when the people would put on sackcloth to indicate uh, this mourning. Now, some say that the reason they're wearing sackcloth is because this is a reaction to the abomination of desolation. But there's nothing in the text to indicate that. There are many other explanations of why these two witnesses would be in mourning. They, their, their, their ministry is to an apostate nation, an apostate people, uh, the apostate Israel that has rejected the Messiah since the first advent. They're coming in mourning because during this time of the 70th week of Daniel, Israel is under condemnation and going to be under judgment. For all of these reasons, they could uh, justifiably be wearing sackcloth because they are calling the nation to obedience in the same uh, vein as Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the great prophets of the Old Testament. So I believe that the reason they are wearing sackcloth is because they are in mourning over the spiritual uh, condition of Israel. Now, verse 4, we read that these are the two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, this imagery comes out of Zechariah. And Zechariah, we have a picture of Zechariah chapter 4 of two olive trees. And the, out of the olive trees, oil is coming uh, to empower the two men who are leading Israel at that time, Zerubbabel and Joshua. 
And I'd like for us to conclude by just turning back to Zechariah chapter 4. We'll spend some more time on this next time, but I want to introduce this and to tie things together a little bit. When we look at Zechariah 4, we see a historical circumstance where, which occurred after the uh, small bands of Jews had returned from the Babylonian captivity. They had begun to reconstruct the temple, but then they had stopped, and so they had become uh, spiritually uh, negligent. They didn't care about their spiritual life, and so... Uh, in Zechariah, Haggai, the focus is on re- rebuilding the temple. In verse four, I mean chapter four, this vision is given to Zechariah related to his ministry in relationship to the temple. Now, there are a lot of things that we can say about this. I'll come back talk about the chapter a little more next time. But it seems to me that the key verse, the central verse that we find in this in this chapter is found in verse 6. In verse 6, we read, Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That the rebuilding of the temple, at that time, this would be the second temple, in around, this is around 520, 525 B.C., would be done not in human power or human effort, but by my spirit says the Lord. And so this is the point of comparison between the ministry of Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest at the time of the rebuilding of the second temple, even though they reinstitute sacrifices at that time before the temple is is completed, there it is their spirit-empowered ministry that is the focal point of comparison between uh, Zechariah 4 and the events of the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11. And this is a great promise because the principle that is in uh, Zechariah 4.6 is one that we need to be reminded of in our own spiritual lives. We face all kinds of challenges in life. We face all manner of adversity in life. And often we try to solve our problems and face our uh, negative circumstances in our own power and in our own wisdom. But the principle that God Uh, states to Zerubbabel and Zechariah 4 is one that is true for every believer throughout the church age, and that is that we live our lives and we handle our problems and we face the adversity not on the basis of our own power, our own wisdom, or our own skill, but by God the Holy Spirit because he is the one who empowers us and enables us. He's the one who helps us to understand God's word, stores it in our soul, and brings it to our memory so that we can then apply it and the Holy Spirit uses it to produce uh, spiritual growth and spiritual advance in our lives. It is a unique ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, in this age, distinct from that of Israel in the Old Testament or in the tribulation period when these two witnesses are empowered. But it is through God, the Holy Spirit, that they are empowered so that they can challenge the power of the Antichrist And we will see the nature of their ministry next time when we come back to continue our study in verse 4 and following. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be reminded that our worship in this dispensation is by means of the Spirit and by means of truth. That we have a 
uh, unique privilege in that every believer in the church age is indwelt by God the Holy Spirit and empowered by him. We're filled by the Spirit for ministry, for worship, for uh, fulfilling the spiritual life. And Father, this is such a wonderful privilege that we have that that uh, the Spirit guides us, directs us, and he is the one who empowers us. And we are reminded of this from this promise from the Old Testament that it's not by power and by might, it's not by what we do, it is by the Spirit that we live our spiritual life. Father, we pray that this morning that there's anyone here that uh, for whom a lot of this seems a, a little strange because they've never really been exposed to the teaching of your word. They've never really understood uh, the gospel before. They've never recognized that uh, as a born spiritually dead, that they are under condemnation from uh, heaven and that they have a free gift available to them, which is eternal life through Jesus Christ because he died on the cross for their sins. And we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior, that he died on the cross for their sins, and that by trusting in him and him alone, they have eternal life. Father, we pray for those of us who are saved, that we would be challenged by the message this morning that we Remember that it is by your word and by your spirit that we live our spiritual life, that we may learn uh, more and more what it means to trust in you and rely on you to live on the basis of your power and not on the basis of our strength or our wisdom. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins. Amen.